The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, uh, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, into uh, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bailey. All right, so I understand that we are flying blind this morning. We don't have a screen working. Um, that's a part of it. It's just part of, it's part of being a, a site that tears, that tears down and sets up every Sunday. Um, but uh, well, let's just get into this. I'm going to raise this just a minute. Give me a second. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. I love this subject. Uh, this is our second sermon in this series on uh, called Doubting Christianity. Uh, and, and, and we're, we're taking these seven different topics uh, that are things to, to, to wrestle through as we examine what we believe and why, and how Christianity responds to these uh, topics. In your bulletin on the back, I believe, you see kind of the list of the, of the sermon series. This one jumps out to me uh, because some of my own personal testimony is one that is marked by suffering uh, and affliction. And uh, so I have been looking forward to this uh, this message this morning for, for a while. I want to pray and then we'll get into it. Father, I pray that you would give us sensitivity to your spirit this morning, that you would give us ears to hear from you and eyes to see you, um, and eyes to see ourselves in, in the light of the testimony of your, your word. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, almost exactly six years ago, I sat at a table on the patio of the Starbucks near Vanderbilt on 21st um, there, if you've ever been there out by Vanderbilt's campus. And I was there by myself, and I had come for a very particular reason to that Starbucks patio. I was there to write letters. I was there to write specifically five letters. I had fallen pretty gravely ill in the weeks leading up to that moment. Unexpectedly, I developed a bacterial infection that had done severe damage to my heart 
and needed to be treated, the infection needed to be treated with IV antibiotics. So I got this fanny pack that I wore that had a pump mechanism in it and then these bags of IV antibiotics that I would switch out over the course of the day. And in the span of about four weeks, I, I ended up pumping about seven gallons of this syrupy antibiotic into my system, effectively meeting my deductible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and, the, and the, what had happened was uh, I got this infection. It was actually inside my heart. And it had latched onto my mitral valve and had destroyed it. Uh, and so I was in heart failure. And as soon as they got the infection under control, the plan was to then go in and do open heart surgery to either uh, replace or repair my mitral valve. Um, so I get spoiler alert, I lived. Um, <laughs> but those five letters were letters to my wife and my kids in case the worst happened. And I was there because I was doing the work of putting a house in order because I was suffering. And it was a season of, of an education on the collision of affliction and faith. What happens when affliction and faith collide? In this world, everybody suffers. There is no opting out of this option. Everyone suffers in this life. And so whatever your worldview is, it can't contain the option of no suffering. It's just, it, it's inescapable. It's part of the human experience. Even Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. If I went around this room and invited 10 random people to come up to this microphone right here, and share stories of your suffering, by the end, we would all be in tears. We'd be in tears because of the sorrow that that small cross-section of people would bear witness to. We'd be sad for them, for the things that have gone through their lives, and we would be sad for ourselves too, because we would be reminded as we were listening of what C.S. Lewis said so poignantly when he said, it seems to me that one can say anything, that one can hardly say anything either good enough or bad enough about life. The Apostle Peter, when he wrote this epistle, he was writing to people who were suffering. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were trying to discern how they were going to move forward, facing what they were facing, enduring what they were enduring. And surely the idea of abandoning the faith crossed many minds as they saw people they loved being persecuted and suffering for their faith, as they themselves lived in fear of that persecution and suffering coming their way. Surely many people ask the question, is this worth it? Is it worth it to go through this? And then where is God in this? Where is God in suffering? Are the goodness of God and suffering incompatible with each other? As a pastor, 
I regularly sit with people in their suffering. I did so even this week with a family that I love who's walking down a long, mysterious, seemingly endless season of affliction. And as a man myself, who once sat at a coffee shop writing letters to my own family in case I didn't make it, here's what I found. Nothing in me wants to shrink away from this subject. Nothing in me wants to shrink away from this subject of where can God be good and suffering happen at the same time. Because I don't think that the reality of suffering does any damage to the credibility of a good and loving God. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I want to lean in when we talk about this subject. I want to lean in when we talk about the reality that everybody suffers. Because it's a worthy discussion. And I want to give you my thesis for this morning. And it's this. I don't believe the reality of suffering discredits the idea of a good God. I believe that the reality of suffering proves that there's a loving God. Why? How could I say that? Because if suffering is a reality for all of us, and it is, then we should be asking at least two fundamental questions. And those questions should be this. Why is this happening? What is being done about it? Why is this happening and what is being done about it? And I will tell you this, the gospel of Jesus Christ answers these two questions. Why is this happening and what is being done about it? With an unshrinking, resolute clarity that you are not going to find anywhere else. So let's get into them. Why does suffering happen? Peter begins this letter by telling these suffering Christians that they have cause to rejoice because they've been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their hope is living. Are you hope, hopeful people? Are you people with hope? Do you have hope? Have you been to Hobby Lobby and bought a plaque that says hope <laughs> and put it somewhere in your house like we have? Hope in the face of present suffering, Peter says, it's based on this, that Jesus Christ defeated death. Jesus Christ, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and it has been destroyed by the power of Christ. Hope, listen, hope doesn't exist without something being broken. Hope doesn't exist without suffering. Hope is longing for something we don't yet have, believing we'll get it. And so if you're a person who believes in the value of hope, then you've already accepted the reality of suffering. And your belief in hope is a kind of protest. It's a protest against it. It's a protest 
that someday suffering will cease. And the Christian hope is that that belief, that suffering will one day cease, is attached to an eternal inheritance as well. The Christian hope is attached to an eternal inheritance, Peter says, that is kept for us in this passage. He says it's kept for us by the same one who keeps us. So Christ is in the business of keeping it all together. And one day that inheritance, which is nothing less than the kingdom of God itself, it will be ours forever, never to be lost. But right now, and this is the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end, right now we live in a world that's broken. It's broken. Christianity has an answer for where all of our suffering comes from, and it's this. Humanity's broken relationship with our maker. We have rejected our creator's right to be our God, and we have made other gods for ourselves. And in our commitment to live this way, as people who are chasing after other gods, the gods we've made, we've then lived lives where the peace we were meant for the peace we were meant to have with our creator has been frustrated. And it's been frustrated by us. It's been frustrated by our attempts to find satisfaction apart from him. And all of our attempts to find satisfaction apart from him on that soul level, all those att- they've failed. <coughs> the world is broken. And we are broken. And we're frustrated. And this frustration, it's the bad news of the Christian gospel, right? That something here is wrong. Something here is broken. Now let me ask you a question. Let's get that hope back on the wall. What's of greater comfort to you? To say the world is broken and here's why? Or to say the world is broken and nobody knows why? What's of greater comfort? The world is broken, and here's why, or the world is broken, and no one knows why. It's another way of asking, do we suffer in vain or not? (coughs) Not knowing why the world is broken doesn't make it any less broken. If part of your reason for rejecting Christianity is because of the brokenness of the world, is it because you're then embracing a view that says, who knows why it's broken? And is that more comforting? Not knowing why the world is broken doesn't make it any less broken. And saying there's no reason for the brokenness only leads to greater despair than seeing that there is. We're deep in the marshes of philosophy right now, so let me pull it out with a story. I want to illustrate this. Uh, So we have four children. We're in the process of having five children. We're adopting this boy from China, which, by the way, you all have been amazing in your support of our family. Thank you. Uh, We we don't really know what to say, Um, but uh, we feel so loved and supported by this congregation. Okay, so our son is our oldest. And when he was about five years old, he had his first loose tooth. And he came to us with his loose tooth, and he had this serious look on his face, and he said, Mom, Dad, look. And he's wiggling 
one of his bottom teeth. He looked concerned, you know. And to ease his distress, we did what parents do. We got excited. And we said, dude, this is great. That thing's gonna, when, that, when, when it comes out, we're going to put it under your pillow. And in the morning, there's going to be a surprise, probably, probably money. And that kid gave us this look that said, you are answering a very different question from the one I'm asking right now. <laughs> he didn't want to know what was going to happen to his tooth after it fell out. He wanted to know, why am I falling apart? <laughs> and to what extent is this going to happen? He wanted to know, why is this world that I've trusted so far turning back on me like this? Why am I being betrayed right now? And how far is it? Is my nose going to fall off? Am I going to lose an arm? What is it? And our like, future reward that we offered him didn't help him really in his present suffering. Something in him needed to know, how does this work? And so I changed my approach I just gave him the graphic truth. And I said, okay, listen, man. Here's the deal. Your tooth is loose because it's a baby tooth. And behind it are your man teeth. <laughs> and right now, you don't know it, but you've got all these man teeth that are just they're growing right now. And what they're going to do is... They're going to keep growing. I said, this, this, this tooth right now is going to be pushed out. And each one that you have is, is, is you know, it's, it's loose. You, you, you can do this. I have, I have man teeth. Feel, try to see them. They don't budge. And you, you, you actually grab one of my tooth and tried to wiggle it. And I said, listen, this is your first loose tooth. But son, every tooth you have in your head right now is eventually going to get pushed out by another tooth, a big tooth, a permanent tooth. And every time, each one's going to get a little loose. It's going to get a little bit sore. It's going to bleed like yours is bleeding right now, and you're going to suffer. And when it falls out, it's probably going to bleed even more because there's going to be this hole where your tooth used to be. But a big person tooth, it's going to come in behind it, and it's going to take its place. I, I, I could pull it for you right now if you want. And he did... He declined. Um, he, did, he didn't really want me to do that. But at the same time, I will tell you, that answer calmed him. Because I was answering the question he was asking. Why is this happening? He wasn't worried about what was going to happen to his baby tooth. He was worried about what was happening to him. And in his trauma, all we offered him at first was that teeth turn into money. And he didn't need that. He needed to understand the graphic truth of what's this about right now? Was this suffering in vain? Was there a reason for it? Christianity has an answer to that question. Because of sin, the world is broken and we are broken. And that's why we all suffer. Why is this happening? That's why. So what's being done about it? What's being done about it? If suffering feels and seems wrong 
to you. You know, if you just feel like it's not right that this is happening. It's not right that we live in a world where this happens. If it seems wrong to you, guess what you've done? You've attached meaning to suffering. This is not for nothing. And so shouldn't your response to it then be some kind of a protest? If you believe it's wrong, shouldn't your response then to it be some kind of a protest, a longing to see it end? Christianity answers the question, what is being done about suffering? In a way that's a protest. And there's so much that I want to say about it. I don't have time to cover all of the things to say. But I want to look at two answers that Peter highlights in this passage. What's being done about suffering? First, our suffering is being used for good right now. And second, one day all suffering will cease forever. That's what's being done about it. It's being used for good right now, and it's going to cease forever. Oh, and when it ceases forever, those who believe in Jesus will survive. We will survive that. We will live past the end of suffering, and on and on and on. So suffering is being used for good right now. Suffering will cease forever. In our text, Peter says suffering produces two positive outcomes, at least two. Personal refinement and outward witness. Let's look at that first one, personal refinement. In verses 6 and 7, Peter is saying that your, 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 your suffering is a testing. It's a testing. He says, it, it, you've, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It doesn't simply determine, suffering doesn't simply determine if genuine faith is present. It's a way that God shapes us then into who we're meant to be. And I didn't need to tell you that, you know that. If we open this mic up again, we just said, it's open mic morning, let's just keep having people come up. And I said, okay, this time, 10 random people Tell us the season in your life where you feel like you grew personally the most, spiritually the most. Most of those stories are not going to be when everything was humming along great, everything was working, you had all the money you needed, you had all the friends you needed, everything. The stories would be stories of suffering, wouldn't they? They'd be stories of hardship, of trial, of uncertainty, of not knowing what's next, of not being able to really kind of see, of, 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 of hurting, of being ill. Those would be the stories that we would tell. God uses suffering to shape us into who we're meant to be. And so we see how our trials have shaped us. And Peter is saying, don't waste that. Don't waste your suffering. It shapes you. In other words, when you're facing suffering, whatever you're facing, it's wise to pray that the Lord would lead you out transformed in some way. Sometimes you'll be transformed in big ways. Sometimes it'll be maybe a little less obvious, but, but Lord, use the suffering in my life to refine me. So personal refinement. And the second is outward witness. And that's what Peter spends a lot of time in this text noting, is he says our trials don't only shape us in ways we may never see. They shape other people too. Peter says, look, your, your trials are on, our, are on account of your love for Christ. When you stand up under the testing of your faith, you testify that Christ's love is stronger than your weakness. And in doing this, you're honoring and praising his name. In our trials, we bear witness to our hope. 
and where it resides. We bear witness to our hope in Christ. How Peter tells us in verses 8 and 9, he says it looks like this. When we suffer and we love Jesus, we rejoice in him and are seeing the fulfillment of the salvation to which we were first called, that hope. And all of this happens while we've never seen Christ actually in person. And this kind of faith is a powerful witness. People respond to it. They see it and they don't know what to make of it because they think you should be in despair and you're not. So he uses our suffering as an outward witness. So what's being done about it? Well, it's being used for good right now. The second thing is that it, it, is, it is going to cease forever. The other thing that's being done about suffering is this. Because of Christ's resurrection, suffering will one day cease. The old order of things will pass away. The new creation will be unmarred. And for those whose faith is in Christ, that is where this is all going. And Jesus didn't just sympathize with our suffering. He entered into it. He took it upon himself. This, this Jesus who said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is precisely what he did for us. He laid down his life for us and he called us his friends. And he did this because he loves us. So he didn't just say, I'm sorry you're going through a hard time. I'm working on something and it'll get better. He took our sin upon himself. He, he, he bore the full brunt of our suffering in himself. And in a world where everyone suffers, only Christianity offers this concrete reason to believe that it's going to one day end. Because we have, a, we have an object that we look at. We have something that we look at and we say, here's the concrete reason why we believe this is going to end. It's because Jesus raised from the dead. Like, really, he did. It's not a metaphor. It's not an inspirational idea. There was an empty tomb and a risen Christ who defeated the power of death, gives us life in his name. He's our living hope. Suffering will cease, and the people of God will survive that. And it will be all we know. All suffering will one day cease. The gospel of Jesus Christ then gives us consolation and hope. It gives us consolation in our present suffering through the incarnation and the cross that Jesus walked what we walk. Through his incarnation and cross we see Jesus fully entered into our suffering, took it upon himself. And the gospel also offers us hope for the future. Because Jesus has defeated the power of death itself and he gives us life in his name, we have the assurance that we are bound for an eternity free from suffering. It's hard to imagine. You know why it's hard to imagine? Everybody suffers. Hard to imagine, nonetheless true. And so I pray that the graphic truth of the gospel would bring the kind of comfort that can only be called what Peter says here is inexpressible joy. That we would see it. We would see something's being done about it. Something has been done about it. And like Chris's baby teeth, this world is falling apart, but there's a force behind it. And it's pushing out the decay and it's pushing out the temporary 
And this temporary brokenness is going to be forced out through a coming permanent glory. And when it does, that will be all we know forever. Believe me when I say to you that when I wrote those letters to my wife and kids, this truth, that this permanent, this temporary brokenness will be forced out through a coming permanent glory, and when it does, that will be all we know forever. Believe me when I tell you that that truth was in those letters. Because Christ has defeated the power of death. So what else shall we fear? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word being living and active. I thank you for the way that Christianity is not a faith that hopes we will overlook the problem of suffering because it somehow does damage or weakens the Christian witness, but that we will understand that actually Christianity, unlike any other faith system in the world, looks suffering dead in the eye and says there's a reason why this is happening and it's being dealt with comprehensively, eternally. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to us. Lord, the thing about suffering is we never really know when it's coming a lot of times. And so I don't know what this year is going to hold for people. But I do pray, Lord, that as we suffer and as we struggle, that we would be reminded that we do not suffer as those who have no hope, but that you not only have secured our eternal inheritance, you have suffered in our place, and that we would find great comfort in that. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.